You are listening to a podcast from The National. October excitement from Apple. Saudi petrochemicals make a SABIC and growing ambitions in China. Siemens pins its hopes on flight, the electric kind. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast from the National's newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief, and with me is Chris Nelson, Assistant Business Editor. Chris, welcome. Thanks very much, Mustafa. Uh, later on, uh, you've got an interview that it was uh, very insightful from a serial entrepreneur, mm-hmm. uh, Kauther bin Suleyem. So uh, at the back end of the show, we'll get into that. So Chris, tell me, what's the big news from Apple at the moment? Well, as you will know by now, uh, when you're listening to this, uh, last night we'll have seen the unveiling of um, new products from uh, the mighty Apple, uh, and specifically iPhones, Apple Watches with bigger screens and stuff like that, um, at, would you believe, the Steve Jobs Theatre at the company's headquarters. I never knew that uh, was apparently thing. he had something to do with Apple, Steve Jobs, apparently, minor yeah. role. No, they had a theatre for in, him. In that, history. Yeah. And a theatre, well, you know, he did like theatre. I mean, he's, of course... Uh, synonymous in history, the late Steve Jobs, with their dramatic unveilings of products. Um, You know, everyone's going to be excited because in October next month, uh, we're actually going to be able to get our hands on these products, including in the UAE. Mm -hmm. Um, The expectation uh, before the launch was of a new range of smartphones, Mm -hmm. taking the iPhone X into newer territory. Mm -hmm. There's no expectation of revolution. It's not not evolution. Tim Cook may have made us eat our words by now. He might have done. Uh, But in general, I mean, if we look at the year that Apple has had up to this point, there's no reason why it won't be positive. Mm -hmm. The third quarter was really strong, um, 88 billion um, in revenues. Sorry, uh, forgive me, that's wrong. 52 billion Mm -hmm. in revenues for the third quarter. It was 88 billion in the first quarter. In total, year to date, about Two, almost 200 billion in revenues. Yeah. The fourth quarter's forecast will do 60 billion. That's huge. It's, of course, a trillion dollar company yeah. now, yeah. Um, which was considered a huge uh, milestone mm-hmm. that Apple breached. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Quickly followed by Amazon, mind you. Yeah, true, yeah. true. I mean, it, it speaks to the overall sentiment in the stock markets, of course. But Apple itself has been doing pretty well. I mean, the third quarter results, perhaps maybe not in terms of devices mm-hmm. and perhaps maybe not in terms of wearables like the watch, but their I, their headphones did really well, mm-hmm. um, which are great. I use them. Um, and uh, their services like iTunes did particularly yeah. Yeah. Uh, robustly yeah. in that quarter yeah. as well, which shows sort of the evolu- evolving nature of the yeah. company. Yeah. Um, but people can't get enough of Apple, even though it, it's third in the world in terms yeah, of devices yeah. and smartphones, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting how it keeps plowing in uh, all this money into itself, uh, you know, get from revenues and, and profits and everything. I mean, the June quarter was its best ever, uh, and that was the fourth consecutive quarter of double-digit growth in revenue. Um, it's just a money-making machine, and primarily because you know the the name Apple is such a, has such cachet. Um, you know, you say I have an Apple, people instantly think it must be good. You say I have a Samsung, and it's like, well, so what? But Samsung is, of course, the market leader. 71.5 million delivered in uh, Q2, and it has a market share of 21%, closely followed by uh, Huawei. Apple's uh, languishing in third, you know, with a market share of 12%. So it might be, I think, that uh, this year it's going to, you're going to be able to buy them in October rather than last year was sort of mid end of November. So it could well be that they learned something last year that as you ride or create that wave of excitement about your new products, get it to market quick. While, it, while it's still hot, you know, and I think that might be part of, of their push to try to, to overhaul some of the uh, market I mean, I do, I do remember the iPhone X, the launch was a little bit underwhelming. I mean, there was, mm. a, there was a few changes to it. 
um, to the to the device. I mean, the big the big innovation has been the charging pads, yeah. Which now apparently the you know the big thing will be charging multiple devices at the same time yeah. on a pad, yeah. um, and and that is interesting in terms of of, of how we use devices mm-hmm. and and the, and the way we do things, particularly because we don't always hold things right. So you can leave it on a pad and exactly. you're doing whatever you're yeah. doing, you know, yeah. listening to a podcast yeah. or whatever, or on a phone yeah. with your headphones, yeah. um, but. Um, it certainly, when you talk about it having cachet, it's got to because the top of the range uh, iPhone is going to be retailing at well over a thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean that's a huge amount yeah. of money for something that the expectation is you change it mm-hmm. every year, every yeah. two years. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, there is a kind of reverse Moore's law for these consumer <laughs> products where, um, as time goes by, the worse the quality is. Right, they don't last yeah. as long as they used yeah. to. Um, and 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 you feel that way. Yet the prices for some of these these devices are getting higher and higher. Yeah. And I wonder if there isn't a sort of ceiling at which point you say, "Well, I don't really want to spend that much." And mm-hmm. because I'm changing my phone every year, so I mean, I, Apple's also trying to meet Samsung and Hawaii at, at the at the lower price points. Yeah, yeah. because it realizes that you know there are there are it's better to have more entry points yeah. when you when you can cater different yeah. tastes and, and different of course needs. there's a massive market at the lower end as well. You know, China, across, India, Asia, China. China. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but certainly, I think Apple is synonymous with quality. Mm. Um, it's also synonymous with an experience. Yeah. I mean, they've done very well with the retail side with the Apple stores. Yeah. I mean, their services, interestingly, iTunes, you'd be surprised. I mean, a lot of competition from Spotify Mm-mm. and other services, but they seem to be holding their own. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess it, it also speaks to more people using streaming, mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. people using digital mm-hmm. services, mm-hmm. in which case they'll be well-placed because they got the content. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, but, look at the phenomenal success of Netflix. I mean, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the way it's going. Yeah. I mean, they're they're part of that phenomenon. Yeah. Amazon, the Fangs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Love, yeah. That's a good acronym. It's a great it's one. It's better yeah. than bricks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. More exciting. Um, but it. I mean, I wonder if you know, since they haven't really been revolutionary for some time, mm. and, and I'm I'm hoping that my words aren't <laughs> coming across <laughs> foolishly um, at the moment to the listeners. They'll come out but, with a telespot. Tele- exa- exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some kind of you know space rocket. <laughs> yeah. um, but the. I remember Sony was was kind of came out with the Walkman, which was revolutionising, mm-hmm. and then and then kind of never really, you know, with the exception of the PlayStation, which mm-hmm. was a serendipitous mm-hmm. discovery mm-hmm. for the company, never really broke ground again. Mm-hmm. And and while they create great TVs, they, they you don't get excited by no, with respect no, to our no. Japanese friends, no. you don't get excited about no. the latest Sony item. Well, it's in a similar way. You don't get very excited about the latest Toyota, particularly, do you? Um, I the, think those, these are big companies that have been around a long time, um, and although this doesn't apply to Toyota, um, Sony certainly went through a really hard patch a couple of three years ago. In fact, it's only just got back into uh, into the black. Um, so yeah, it, it the whole Apple tech kind of. Well, I actually, um, say that, but I'm reminded now. Didn't Toyota have a spate of recalls and problems over? They did, the, they, yeah, yeah, but so, I, don't, I don't think they're so if lost. You, though. you hang around long enough on the corporate time curve then eventually you're going to run into a problem and, yeah and i mean apple obviously had very public problems the first time steve jobs left mm. and then he came back to resurrect the company yeah. Yeah. but there's always that fear i guess that lingers that trillion dollar company or not that the next fall is only around the corner yeah 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 and how do you foresee that well you, you don't by if history is any lesson anyway you can't see them coming so well i mean i think 
you know, it's it's not likely to happen anytime soon. Uh, more broadly, let's take a step back and and, and look at the uh, oil and gas uh, sector, the extension of it in the petrochemicals. Sabic, the Saudi producer, it's one of the largest in the world, um, has signed an agreement to develop a large-scale petrochemicals complex in China, in the province of Fujian. Um, China is a huge, huge end market for petchems, chemicals, any oil derivative products as well as crude oil, of yeah. course, a really big customer for the Saudis. Yeah. And this continues their efforts to sort of, I guess, be in their end user market as close as possible, yeah. but also ties into the overall Saudi vision, the uh, development of, of of their economy to mm-hmm. diversify. Mm-hmm. And recently, of course, Aramco announced it would take a 20% stake in Sabic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, they have the, they have that vertical power, yeah, don't they? Absolutely. They've got the, they've got the financial muscle now to go and uh, really really take it to uh, the Chinese market. Um, I mean, Sabic's a massive company anyway. You know, it's the Middle East's biggest petrochemicals company. You know, 35,000 people worldwide. It's in 50 countries. So it's got experience of of, uh, markets outside of uh, its home base. Um, I think it's also indicative of an increasing shift by, you know, all the world's major oil exporters um, towards selling higher margin products, particularly in Asia. you know the old idea that if you if you can sell a barrel of oil for a hundred dollars, but you can turn that barrel of oil into fifty car bumpers that you can sell for a hundred dollars, then you know, do the math. You know, um, so yeah, and also tying in with with the vision um, and the move towards renewable energies, of course, means that that frees up more uh, oil for either for refining or or for for exporting um, to refineries that may well have. You know, joint ventures with elsewhere, such as in uh, in China. Um, so it continues that trend, um, as you as you mentioned. Uh, but also, I guess you know, in a, in a more sort of short medium term, there are some concerns over uh, Chinese growth, uh, a huge amount of debt, local level there, for example. Um, you know, the government stepping in and, mm. and trying to manage that in a, in a in a slow way that there's no shock, there's no crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, but but also, it's it's sort of you, you can't avoid. You have to go in and build. You've got to invest. Yeah. And and yeah. and something like a petrochemicals complex is is a long term investment. Yeah. Yeah. So they're going to have to, they might have to ride out some short term bumps but I guess you know the huge population in China they're not about to go backwards in economic no, terms no, and so there not. will always be the demand for as you yeah. said these higher value products yeah, yeah absolutely the, 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 I guess you just can't do anything about the timing of it you yeah. have, you can't do it when things are good no you've you got to do it when you it. can do it yeah exactly when you've got the financial power to do it then do it then um and as you say with a massive population there and a, a rapidly growing um, middle class, uh, you know, and uh, urbanization of the entire country, huge new cities being built everywhere. They require these higher end products and vast amounts of them. So if you're in a position when you're there to be able to provide them, then, you know, you're in a win-win situation. I mean, the pet chems industry globally is, is huge anyway. It generated $2.27 trillion last year. I mean, the amounts of money available are just mind-boggling, really. Uh, Germany's Siemens, always looking for a new market in which it can dominate. Um, aviation, but perhaps not uh, in, in, in the most obvious area. They they think uh, electric or some variation of electric will be the, the power in the skies in the exactly. future. Is that right? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, they're working with Airbus at the moment on, um, and they aim to have these things flying by 2030, uh, hybrid electric powered um, aircraft. Um, and they say that electric propulsion, they believe, is is going to become um, the norm by 2050. Um, but there are there are other technologies being considered, such as uh, hydrogen gas powered planes. Um, but uh, the push 
to electrification is just kind of the next step of of you know transport in general you know the, there are developments in in um, electric uh, cargo tankers for instance you know Siemens is ideally placed to 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 work with these things because it makes turbines and things like that um and the idea of having an electric aircraft at the moment it's not possible to have a fully electric aircraft because the battery technology is not at the stage where it's uh, light enough or powerful enough to power the engines and all the other mission critical uh, you know systems that are on board a plane but what they're planning to do what they intend to do is to use this hybrid in a way that basically the battery will provide the power for um, takeoff and getting to cruising altitude from then a much smaller standard jet fuel engine than would otherwise be needed powers it um, on its on its uh, you know once it's at its ceiling um, and then of course you don't really need any power to land it as such so um, at the moment that's what they're looking at they have a, a test aeroplane um, a German aircraft that they're testing that like a test bed flying test bed that they're testing all these things and they believe that they will have by 2020 they'll have decided what the best solution for this is and they'll go to go forward from there but they're not the first and they're not the only um there's a norwegian company that already has an electric aircraft that's flying that they're testing with so it's small admittedly but and and size is, is a is a limiting factor siemens and airbus at the moment will be looking initially to sort of 100 100 air, 100 seat aircraft but the reason why siemens is working with airbus is because the airbus a320 has uh, 70% of the world's RPKs, which is a measurement of, of how many uh, kilometres are flown uh, by each passenger. Um, so the A320 is a, a, a massive market uh, for that, and Airbus wants to work with Siemens to electrify the A320 eventually, which would be a major game-changer because there are $1.3 trillion worth of aircraft, conventional aircraft due to be bought between now and 20, 2030, so the question is, what are you going to do with those? You know, if this does become the game changer that it is, we will see. Uh, Chris Nelson earlier caught up with Kalther bin Saleem. Uh, she's the founder and CEO of KBS Communications. Not only is she a serial entrepreneur since the age of eight, but she's also a branding expert. You've been uh, an entrepreneur for a very long time, which implies, uh, I guess, that, that you must be a very old lady. But uh, you're not. You're extremely young. So you began your entrepreneurial, uh, your entrepreneurial endeavours at a very young age. I wonder if you can uh, give us a, an inside story on how that began. Well, you know, as a child growing up, um, people around you were around me were entrepreneurs themselves, and I always felt the need, uh, not just the need. I always was inspired to be my own boss. So I actually took an opportunity. This was my first thing to do in business. Um, every Friday, my family will get together for Friday prayers and lunch. And after lunch, you know, people were lazy to go out for a snack or, or a drink. And I was like, you know what? There's a potential for me to do something here. And what I did, I started buying nuts from the grocery store, packaging it into smaller portion and selling it at an overpriced <laughs> cost to my family Perfect member. entrepreneurship. Yes. Yeah, so it started all from there. And... And I'm how old are you when you would, when you when you had that idea? I think I was around eight. That's that's yeah. remarkable. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I remarkable. made good money, so that's great. <laughs> yeah. So that gave you the um, the incentive. Then thinking, if I can do it there, I can do it yeah. more. Yeah, with simple things too. Yeah. And I think it's indicative of the feeling 
that's that's growing now here as well about entrepreneurship and about how you know there are opportunities available if if you look for them. Um, yeah. you you saw one very early on, and and from that uh, early business empire that you uh, that you created, <laughs> you moved into into um, strategy ad- advising uh, companies and um, communications, and you sort of began seriously into that when you when you were um, older than eight. Um, <laughs> At the uh, the executive office of the UAE vice president, uh, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed Al-Maktoum. You were responsible there for media, uh, marketing, communications. How did that manifest itself? What what sort of what was your effectively your job? I mean, obviously, when I started at such an you know important government entity, I started really junior. I worked mm-hmm. myself up, so it wasn't something really easy to gain trust and mm-hmm. to show what I'm capable of. So definitely, I worked really hard along other you know, people within the organization yeah. and uh, to a point where I reach a level where I can be part of bigger projects. Mm-hmm. One of the projects that I'm very proud of is working with other entities, other government entities within the government of Dubai to help rebrand and convey the message of Dubai. Yeah. And this was really interesting because our leadership had a vision had a vision of, you know, showcasing or representing Dubai for everyone. And I think it's a perfect example of different organization um, within the city coming together identifying the opportunities, putting together the key messages and, you know, centralizing our communication strategy mm-hmm. locally and globally. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, it was a, um, a very uh, deliberate strategy to, to bring those elements together and present them to the world, and as you say, locally, um, on, on multi-levels, you know, yeah. uh, from the point of view of family visitors, from the point of view of businesses, from exactly. the point of view of uh, tourist operators. Startups, entrepreneurship, even retirement, mm-hmm. you know, there were a lot of opportunities. And also a lot of people had in the West, you know, a different perception about the Middle East and the UAE. So we wanted to kind of showcase the opportunities available and how we all can be uh, together, um, you know, promoting this one great mm-hmm. message. And of course, it's an ongoing, uh, an ongoing endeavor, isn't it? Exactly. And to be honest, we are, no one can deny this. Dubai became a landmark of the Middle East. uh, And, you know, they've just shown successfully how things could be done. And I think even for the region, this is a great thing um, in terms of strategy. They can learn and we can exchange experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and from that um, uh, gaining of experience, you then moved on to be uh, basically the, the the first national press officer for the inaugural uh, Formula One Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, uh, working also alongside the uh, the motorsport organization FIA in Paris. Yeah. How did that come about, and, and what did you do? Are you interested in motorsport? Yeah, I actually was very. Uh, I, I'm actually a fan of Formula One since mm. I was 13 years old. So mm-hmm. it, it, it was like a dream come true right. for me to be part of such amazing um, event. I used to attend races, um, you know, before having this job. Mm-hmm. So when the opportunity came that I become part of a bigger team to deliver the Grand Prix, um, I definitely couldn't say no because it's yeah. a one-time experience. Yeah. And um, with my background in media and communication, it was just a perfect fit for me to look after the journalists and reporters from all over the world. I was mm-hmm. looking after 600 journalists wow. uh, representing different countries. Yeah. Um we had to do a lot of educational uh, campaigns for uh, UAE media and even yeah. GCC media yeah. to educate them about single racing, single seat racing, yeah. and do exchange programs and even managing them on ground. Mm. So I think you know Formula One and my time with the Yasmari circuit, uh, you know, was really really an interesting time because 
you could see the shift in the exposure for Abu Dhabi and mm. how people started seriously considering Abu Dhabi as a destination. From that, um, you gained so much experience in uh, in those uh, earlier years. You then came to launch your own company, KBS Communications. When when did you launch that, and how how did what, what made you decide to to go your own way? As it was? so, before actually starting KBS, uh, I was approached by private companies like Airbus, JSK. They just needed help understanding the local market and how things work. And so I started as one person uh, doing consultancy. Mm-hmm. And then in 2010, I decided that this is, was the perfect time to quit my job and focus 100% on the business and start building a team. Because, you know, when I worked in the government, mm-hmm. I had to deal with so many agencies mm-hmm. from all over the mm-hmm. world. And I realized that anyone can write a press release, anyone can put a communication plan, but really understanding the strategy, putting crisis communication in place, putting, you know, ideas that can really reflect in the community, yeah. you have to really be embraced and you have to be within that community. Absolutely. You've got to understand it yeah. you know, from the inside out. Yeah. yeah. So I started KBS in the objective of, you know, filling that gap that was in the market that even local and international companies mm-hmm. couldn't compete with. And I'm very fortunate. I'm very happy yeah. right now. And against, um, against many uh, misconceptions, uh, you were not given a huge load of money by uh, either either the state or by, you know, uh, corporate backers. Um, h- how did you get it off the ground in that case? Honestly, I really, I, I really believed in my business concept and I knew that there's growth and potential. You know, working in the government, I used to travel a lot. I didn't have time. I was fortunate. I had a senior position. I had good package. Yeah. I saved up a lot of money. But when I decided to start KBS, I actually refused to get any funding from any government entities or even from my own family mm-hmm. who were interested in, in becoming partners. Because I really wanted to show people like me and people in my generation that with proper financial planning and management of your money, you can reach your dreams Mm -hmm. and you don't have to depend on other people to help you reach your dreams. You Mm -hmm. can work towards it. So yeah, I I started with my own funding and I keep receiving offers of investment now, but I'm happy where I I am and I think uh, other people can also do it. What do you see as as sort of the next five years for KBS? Do you see it expanding um, its footprint or or do you see it offering a wider range of service or what's, what's your plan sort of for the next five years? For now, I mean, we're very focused in this region, um, but our plan for the 10 years uh, coming, um, focus more on expansion within Europe. We definitely have a lot of clients from Europe mm-hmm. and we would see how the business growth uh, continues. And that's that's our plan is to enter the European market with a base there. Mm-hmm. Um, beside the 10-year plan, we also have an expansion plan into diversing our portfolio. Mm-hmm. So instead of KBS becoming just KBS communication, it could be KBS holding and we have under uh-huh. other business ventures uh, underneath. We already started investing in other businesses, which is great, but we are taking baby step, but we're going to yeah. get there. Now, obviously, over, over your extensive career in, in communications, uh, both for yourself and, and previously, you have gained a lot of experience in crisis management and reputational damage. Just to wrap on, I, I wonder if, if you might have some thoughts on, uh, on the man who is currently, globally, probably the biggest PR disaster a major company has known. Of course, uh, none other than uh, the Tesla CEO, uh, Elon Musk. I was wondering, can you give us an insight into how do you think the uh, Tesla communications um, department might be feeling right now? If I were them, I wouldn't be sleeping tonight. Uh, for sure. But um, I think the, the challenge that's, you know, facing um, Elon Musk at this stage, I mean, let's face it, the, the tactics that he's using in his own personal PR is the same tactics that we see every day coming from the White House. Mm, yeah. 
every yeah. day we they have remarkably similar. You know, it's the Roger Stone rule. Yeah. You know, <laughs> go for it. So I think the the main issue for me eva- evaluating the situation is that Elon Musk, as an individual, as the brand face of these different companies. Mm-hmm hasn't very clearly been separated from the day-to-day business of the of three, four businesses yeah. he owns. Like SpaceX and, and yeah. um, Boring Co. And, exactly. Yeah. And I don't think a CEO should always be there defending himself. And I, I also don't think that, you know, I think if you do something wrong, it's okay to go and just say and be transparent and mm-hmm. say, I did it, I did a mistake and I apologize yeah. for it. Yeah. But also at the same time, they don't have a proper plan in place. It's, it looks like they just has to play catch up. Yeah. Yeah, you know, just let him go and do whatever he wants to do. Exactly. And not only that, like, I don't think he's empowering his executives in these businesses to mm-hmm. take the lead, you know, and take ownership mm-hmm. of running the business day to day, including, um, you know, managing that crisis. Yeah. So your personal, you know, personality, you know, going out and talking about certain things, if they have the right PR team in-house or even as an agency, a lot of people put crisis communication strategy on paper. They look great. But when it comes to implementation, it's, it's very hard. Different ballgame. I think in this situation, because I worked with someone in the past who was very open-minded and, you know, it's kind of similar, but not to this extent. Mm -hmm. You really need to know the person very well and you need to understand their personality and how they act and behave in specific Mm -hmm. location. Because when you are in that position, everyone wants to know who is with you at the film festival, what you're doing, who are you in a car. You need to really, you know, watch what you do, especially when the negativity or the impact of everything that comes out of your mouth can affect your employees, your company, and your customers. (laughs) So it's it's definitely something that I don't think they've figured out how to kind of, you know, split the two. two, Yet he is the brand face. Yeah. Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Gartha, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. It's been fascinating and maybe we uh, we ought to give Mr Musk a ring. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. That's almost it for this episode of the Business Extra podcast. All that remains is to thank Chris Nelson. Thanks for being with us. Pleasure, Mustafa. And our producer, Kevin Jeffers, as always. Uh, Thank you all for listening and join us again next time.